Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and today I'm crossing over to Nyon, which is near Lausanne in Switzerland, to catch up with Guy Laurent Epstein. Welcome to the podcast, Guy Laurent. Good morning, Marcus. Good morning. Yes, good morning there from Switzerland. And of course, anyone who pays attention here knows uh, where you are is the head office of UEFA. And of course, that's where you've been now for almost two decades, uh, uh, playing various roles with UEFA. But um, your role in the world of sports uh, started much earlier than this. And as usual, that's where we're going to go to and start our stories here of your amazing career. And then, of course, we'll spend a really good time on Uh, the world of UEFA, both from, of course, the national team side and, and all the, the things you guys are doing there, and, of course, Champions League football, um, which is obviously right now in its final uh, you know, swing here you know, in the last uh, round of the semifinals. So exciting things to talk about. And as we always do, we'll start right at the beginning. So coming out of university there, it wasn't quite sports for you right away. So go on and talk a bit through coming out, uh, you know, what you studied and then where you landed first. <laughs> yes, actually, yeah, it's a bit of a torturous uh, road. But uh, yes, yeah, so I started by studying mathematics right. um, because I, I was actually quite good at that. And also the university was close to home. So that's how I ended up doing four years of mathematics, mm -hmm. um, realizing then that, well, I don't know where it leads me in terms of, uh, of actual business. And uh, I therefore went to a, a business school uh, for another couple of years. Okay. And uh, at, this, at the end of the business school, the easy way going forward was uh, to get to a consulting or auditing firm. And I joined Arthur Anderson. Uh, for uh, for about four years, as a, as an auditor, where um, it, it was quite interesting. Actually, it sounds like an application school uh, because you you very young population of people, and you change uh, clients every uh, every couple of weeks or every month, and oh, wow. change the time you have to do it. So it's it's quite fun because you learn a lot. Mm. Yeah, meeting different type of people and different type of business. So that yeah, that yeah. was quite interesting, I must say. Right. I, I'm certain Arthur Anderson as a as a training ground, so to speak, coming fresh out of university is, is probably a good place, uh, as you said, and you would pick up plenty of interesting things there. So you did that for yes. a few, few few years, and that allows you, I guess, or sort of that that gave you an interest then uh, to get a, what it sounds like on paper at least, a really quite an exciting job uh, with Sony Music uh, a few years before the 1998 Football World Cup in France. Um, so tell us a bit about that, how you switched yeah. and what you were doing there. Yes, well, I, I knew I would not love have a long career in auditing, um, <laughs> but um, uh, I always have been passionate uh, Of, by by sport, I've, I've, I've been playing since uh, I can remember, and I'm still playing actually in a, in the league. Right. So it's really my uh, my passion. Uh, and uh, so when the opportunity went to uh, to to join uh, Sony Music that was working on the World Cup '98, I, I definitely uh, went for it. Um, uh, I joined a, a subsidiary of Sony Music that was dealing with all merchandising and licensing 
marketing activities of all the assets of Sony Music. So being uh, artist, obviously, but also the movies and the Sony Pictures. Mm -hmm. And they extended and they wanted to increase their portfolio uh, by joining, uh, by going in the world of sports and have acquired all the licensing and merchandising rights of the World Cup 98 in France. So it was back in 96. And um, and so we were a small entity based in Paris, coordinating all the programs for, for the entire world. And it was extremely fun again. First, the world of sports. Mm. Second, connected to the world of music with uh, they being uh, in the in the business in the, the buildings of Sony Music and also of PlayStation just before the launch of PlayStation One. Okay. So it was an extremely fun time, and with a great event uh, to to work on the World Cup '98. That was brilliant. With also. Never forget that uh, France won in the end. <laughs> yes, we shall not forget <laughs> that part. Well pointed out there. Um, no, uh, <laughs> that's great. I love it. Um, now, just just sort of to stick to it for a minute here. Um, when, yeah. You know, to talk about it, was uh, I'm assuming Sony paid some sort of a minimum guarantee, and that they probably had a revenue uh, model above that, or, or what was the uh, the model at, in the old days there? around this World Cup. Um, they obviously bought it from yeah, yeah, that, ISL, that, I guess, the, right? Yeah, exactly. ISL was the owner of the rights, uh, and um, Sony Music became the licensing agent hmm. for ISL, offering a minimum guarantee uh, plus royalties on uh, on top of it in, in case the minimum guarantee was rich. Uh, Do you remember was, the numbers, the, roughly? Traditional uh, model. Well, uh, I probably remember it, but I'm not sure it's relevant for that discussion. I okay. guess no problem, no worries. It's always interesting to, to sort of uh, you know see the scale what it was at that time versus well, probably what it is today. Yeah. It was far away from the current numbers, for of sure. Of course, of course, yeah, interesting. So that that sort of uh, so you had your World Cup winning it at home on home turf. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, and I guess you got a bit of an appetite for the world of football and you wanted some more. So how did you then end up uh, switching from Sony to ISL, um, which was, I guess, well, um, after the World Cup? So, interestingly, um, so my counterpart at ISL was a gentleman well-known in the industry called Philippe Lefloc, mm -hmm. uh, yes. uh, that uh, we, with whom I created very strong link and connection uh, and after the world cup he offered me to to join isl to work on the on the next world cup that was meant to happen in, in japan and korea Good. and of course it was a bit of a challenge from a personal standpoint because it, it required a move from paris to lucerne mm -hmm. which uh, obviously uh, is not an easy one Yep. Um, but uh, with uh, my wife, uh, my wife to be at the time, uh, encouraged me, and we 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 left Paris to to join ISL back in um, the, 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 the early '99. Mm. So uh, six months after the, the World Cup finished. Right, right, right. Okay. Now, obviously, we're, we're anyone who knows a bit of history in this space uh, knows that was also then the next few years were quite to you know tumultuous years for ISL uh, with the back of it uh, you know a few years later then running out of money and running out of business here. But 
at the same time, of course, it was a time where Isa was trying to go public and, and, you know, we're doing all sort of somewhat crazy things around the world, right? Um, making huge offers and or, you know, acquiring rights and so on. Um, I know you were more focused on the licensing part there, but, you know, how much did you sort of see this and, and either were excited or concerned about it? Well, I, I mean, as you say, I was uh, focusing on the, on the small bot, but I said well, I was a great was a great company and uh, and we, with great people and you could see that following the collapse but I'll come back to the years there following the collapse a lot of people went to different federations or other agencies and there is a kind of a very strong network of former ISL people right. in the industry that is uh, is, is very uh, very connected I must say but coming back to the years at ISL so I stayed about two years uh, and uh, yeah, it was uh, actually a bit more to than to use. Uh, it was very exciting because it was multi properties, mm -hmm. uh, touching all kind of activities from football to uh, athletics to uh, rugby to basketball. Uh, oh, okay, okay. Uh, you, you were not just focused on the on the football side of things, right? Okay. Uh, I was mostly focusing on football, but we were helping obviously on all other properties. Right. Uh, required less attention because the, the problems were smaller. But still, we were looking at all of it, and um, and it was very, very funny. Um, I was not very close, obviously, to all the the, the big acquisition like tennis or uh, the Brazilian business. Yeah, that's right. Obviously, there was uh, some uh, some discussions around it internally, and uh, and it was extremely exciting. I must say, hmm. I have to admit. I, I can imagine. Um, Isa was a was the king of the of the molehill here at that time uh, by 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 every imagination here. So, um, so you know, any any more interesting stories of you know what you were doing? Obviously, leading it up to uh, the two thousand two World Cup. So well, you were flying was, in and out of Japan, uh, or, or what was sort of your remit? Exactly, I've been traveling. Um, I've been traveling a lot in Asia, which I discovered at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, between uh, Japan, Korea, Hong Kong in the in the middle uh, as a hub as well uh, because we had a strong office in Hong Kong as uh, at the time right. uh, led by Chris Renner yeah, and um, and we actually <laughs> um, yeah the infamous Chris Renner um, we we also built uh, at the time a joint venture with a company based in uh, in Hong Kong uh, in order to manage all premium so the, the the merchandising for the sponsors and all uh, other items to be sold in venues mm -hmm. uh, so I, I spent a lot of time in hong kong as well so from that time i learned quite well the cultures and uh, I, I love asia since then because it's 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 obviously very different but uh it's it's great i mean it's very rooted and deep and uh spent a lot of time there uh, interesting stories to see the differences between be doing business in Japan and be doing business in Korea, but that's not something I will tell you, uh, Marcus. <laughs> you probably far more experienced than me in this, but obviously it was uh, very, very funny to uh, to experience and to uh, and to watch. Uh, I remember at the workshop one of our colleagues uh, compared uh, made an European comparison between Japanese being the Germans of Europe and the Koreans being the Italians. <laughs> it didn't fly very well with them. Uh, I must say, it was not very much appreciated. But yeah. somehow, there is something about it. 
You're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, for 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 people who are listening and have never done business in Japan or Korea, um, and you would think being sort of neighbors up there in the north of Asia, uh, that there are similarities, uh, and there there are of course, but in some cases there also are very different in their approach in their style. Um, I'm not sure I would completely agree with the German Italian uh, comparison, <laughs> but uh, there there you know maybe there is something to it. I think there's a difference in an Italian style to it. The, the Japanese really like to do everything in consent, right, as a group, right? So it has to, everyone around the table has to agree to things. Uh, versus the Koreans, I think they will find some guy and he just makes a decision on his own um, and he actually doesn't care what the rest thinks. <laughs> that would be more my description. <laughs> it was a of. bit of a caricature, obviously, and as I said, well, yeah. it was not certainly very welcome by the by the local guys yeah no no i can hear that i can see that uh, but um but i think then of course the sort of collapse of isel which if i recall was sort of around 2001 um sort of yeah. got, you know just literally happened just before the uh, the world cup and then we all know it, it created a huge issue right uh, i mean it almost put fifa out of you know in, in a bankruptcy to some degree right or at least when you whatever people read about it um in a lot of trouble uh, with a lot of money disappearing or you know not being paid and god knows what all happened here um you know now again you were sort of in that in the company at the time and then of, of course um you, i'm assuming fifa sort of took over several uh, individuals from ISL because they needed the expertise there. Uh, so um, that's how it looks to me here, how you then landed there again as the head of uh, licensing there. Um, just talk us through that. You know, there's a sort of crazy period there for that year or two. Yeah, no, so it, it was, uh, so I think ISL bank got bankrupt in uh, May 2021, hmm. which was uh, a couple of weeks before the Confederations Cup. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. In Japan and Korea, the Confederation Cup that uh, used to be and was until when 2013. I'm not sure there was an edition in 17. I don't remember to be honest. Hmm. But uh, was a kind of uh, uh, rehearsal for the World Cup. Correct. Uh, the year before World Cup with a tournament with eight teams uh, and. Uh, Bringing the champions of each confederations to compete right. in a in a tournament. Right. Um, so it was a couple of weeks before the confederation mm. and indeed uh, FIFA at the time uh, created a, a new company called FIFA Marketing and basically took over the, uh, the football department of ISL to deliver uh, short term uh, the, the confederations cup and obviously. The World Cup that was to come a year after. Uh, this has been created under the leadership of Patrick Magyar, another very famous name in our world, uh, that together with uh, another colleague, Vinan Kravinka, uh, created that, uh, that, uh, that company. And that, uh, that basically it was very uh, seamless because we moved from ISL to uh, FIFA marketing in a few weeks, not changing building mm. and continuing to work on the same project somehow. So it, uh, it it moved very quickly from one to the other because right. somehow we didn't have much time to think. Uh, two or three weeks after, we had to fly back to Japan and Korea to deliver the conferences. Yep. So it became very fast and all of a sudden we were going there with a FIFA hat mm. rather than a hat. Right. Uh, was a difficult period because obviously a lot of colleagues had to go, uh, and it was a total change in the in the industry. 
but uh, but I think it was probably very well managed by FIFA at the time to try to sort out a far bigger issue than the than this, which was also, as you mentioned earlier, uh, making sure that the finance were under control. Yeah. And uh, so they went for a securitization project, etc., to to make sure that they could carry on business. That's right. Uh, they did a deal with Kirsch at the time, right? If I recall, wasn't it part of it? They were was involved for the TV rights. Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. Yeah, yeah. We've had some conversations about that before already. Um, but that yeah. obviously wasn't your world. So I'm assuming uh, you weren't really involved. Yeah, in Kirsch was. We were in the same building with Kirsch. So initially, Kirsch and I said we're in a joint venture to run the, the, the TV rights for the World Cup. Mm. But then obviously cash to cover, and uh, and were involved going forward. Right, right, right. Now again, or to also get bankrupt. Yeah, that's right. Cash had to, yeah, it was a, it was definitely a very uh, tumultuous time. But that uh, there's no question about it. Um, and, and unfortunately, mostly self-created by ISL, right? Um, uh, but uh, you know that's uh, another story altogether here. Uh, was um, another another it, era in the in the world of sports, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Now. Again, I, I can't quite tell you. Did you actually stay on till the World Cup was over and then before you moved to UEFA? Or when was your sort of uh, yeah, shift here? So I, um, I stayed. Uh, I did. I uh, worked on the World Cup until the end and I moved in October uh, 2002 to, to UEFA. Right. Uh, well, I mean, this World Cup was something very, very unique, I must say, uh, because it was not necessarily a lens of football. Uh, to start with, uh, all this East Asia, and I think credit should be given probably to to Mr. Blatter to add those, those visions to really bring the World Cup to the different parts of the world, uh, including Africa in 2010. I think it's uh, it really developed the game and be make it truly global at the time. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, and I actually went to Germany. Obviously, made the final. We didn't win it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I was at every all the games. I had a sort of pass which got me all the tickets to it. So I flew in and out. Obviously, being based in Asia, anyway, it wasn't so difficult. Um, and I enjoyed it. I, I think it was a great event. On both for both countries, uh, did a great job hosting it. Um, you know, with the usual Japanese efficiency, etc on one side and yeah in Korea similar a lot of passion there on the streets um, <laughs> yes right the fans I think it was sort of you know the, maybe the first time sort of you saw this starting to see these sort of fan festivals right I think they were doing a pretty good job with that um, and uh, it was a good World Cup um, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the passion around it was amazing I must say yeah especially Korea right Korean they made it in the what semi-final if I recall right or was it Korea I think went to semi-final yeah, and Japan, probably the quarter or oh, eight final right. Correct. Yeah, they were very, very strong teams, yeah. and uh, yeah, the atmosphere was amazing. That's right. That's right. Um, now, coming to UEFA, then, right? I mean, now here we are, 2002. After, as you said, after the World Cup is over, you're joining uh, the the next giant in the world of football administration here. Uh, first of all, you know, it's, you know, just ex explain a little bit how, where that move came from, uh, leaving FIFA to go to UEFA. Uh, but as I see, the the part which is amazing, we're now looking, we're now going to be looking at 21 years uh, in this organization. So uh, mm -hmm. this is obviously where we're going to dive deep into now. But you know, where did the uh, the switch come from? What what, did, what was the opportunity, well, or what happened? You will uh, you will laugh. Uh, you know, our business, our world is a people's business. Yeah. I mean, and um, I, I really, I never had a. A career plan since the beginning. 
I really uh, connect with people and follow uh, the flow. And uh, I really like to engage with people. And you will love because actually, uh, Philippe Lefloc that left ISL back in 2000 mm-hmm. went to UEFA okay. at the time and, uh, and asked, suggested me to join him uh, in, in, in 2002 after the World Cup to, to go into the a new path in the world of sports. And initially, I was not that keen because after four years in the German part of Switzerland, which was a, a great experience on one end, but challenging. We also had two kids there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the next move was very important to make sure we, we would have a, a great personal life. And uh, it, there was a, a debate about going back to Paris where our roots were and families and mm-hmm. friends and uh, were based or actually taking that exciting move that Philippe was offering me. And it was not a straightforward decision to start with because Paris obviously being home was a, an attractive option. However, uh, Philippe being Philippe uh, has been extremely convincing <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and we made the move to Geneva, which was, uh, or to, to Nyon, which is very close to, to Geneva too. Right. And uh, which was still Switzerland, but in an easier manner, because obviously it's the French speaking part of Switzerland. Correct. And so the, the settling here was easier as a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's uh, that, that's the start of the UEFA adventures uh, back in uh, in uh, 2002, actually. So yeah, uh, more than 20 years. That's right. Yeah, I think I said Lausanne earlier. Really. We, we don't Geneva. Really. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's just like in between it's, Lausanne it's and Geneva. Between, right. Yeah, Lausanne is more <laughs> the the IOC world. Um, that's yeah. right. Actually, I've been to your head office there. Uh, I mean, you have beautiful, uh, beautiful building right right on the lake there, right? It looks amazing. Yes. Um, Now... Let's then let's let's dig deep into the world UEFA. So I want to touch on, uh, of course, the things the, the federation does on its own, but also you know talk about your agents from team marketing to of course yeah. uh, CA Eleven who came in later a bit, um, and all the major championships you guys are running there. So let's start um, a little bit first. You know when you joined, um, which which area did you join? Did you were back in licensing again, or which area were you sort of was your remit uh, mm-hmm. in UEFA at the beginning? Yeah, no. So at the time, actually, back in 2002, it's uh, there was no marketing department in uh, in UEFA. Oh wow! Okay. So we were uh, the, the the department was called professional football and marketing, mm-hmm. and marketing was a very small uh, part. I think we were five or six, mm-hmm. uh, uh, led by Philip, uh, and um, and I joined to to basically do anything that needed to be done so on TV and marketing, supporting Philippe on all those uh, those tasks. And uh, and it was the start of the story. So we were, I mean, business at the time in the world of sports in the federations was not necessarily seen very positively. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was more, you know, the merchants that will uh, change the values of sports for monetary reasons. Mm-hmm. And that was not necessarily seen positively by the, the, the in-house people. But I believe that, again, uh, it's all about connection, relationship, discussion, that you, you create the trust uh, internally and externally, whereby people got to understand that somehow we, we bring value to the table. 
And I'm convinced that business brings a lot of value to sports, not only the money, but also the exposure, the ability to develop new uh, new uh, projects. And uh, it was true at the time, and it's even true and even more today. So uh, I don't see it as a problem. I see it as a great complement and uh, an important part of the overall picture. But yeah. it's true that at the time we were we were not seen positively, but it evolved very quickly. Where uh, in 2004, just after the Euro in Portugal, mm-hmm. um, we 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 for the first time we, the the marketing department was created, uh, led by Philippe again, and I took over the management of all the the marketing activities, so being uh, all the the sponsorship and licensing together with uh, the brands and other topics to be managed. Right. And, and again, th- that obviously is an area which has dramatically changed now over those 20 years. And, and I'm trying to sort of see how we kind of cover that a little bit. Uh, because at the time when you joined, team marketing was already there, as far as I can yeah. remember, right? Um, there yeah, yeah, came yeah. You know, almost a decade before already starting with creating the Champions League there, which again, some ex-ISLers obviously created that. Um, so that was all, in a sense, you know, at least partially done and, and outsourced, so to speak, right? And UEFA, you know, makes some good money on the back of it. But the uh, national team side, that was still very much in uh, in, a, in, a, in a very different shape, right? A lot of rights were still held by directly by the federation themselves or their friendlies and, you know, all the qualification matches, you know, all the bidding wars by agencies at the time always. Um, and, uh, but, you know, then, of course, the, the, the major, the, let's say, the, 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 the euro itself was obviously handled in-house. So talk me through a little bit all those moving parts which were going on there, uh, maybe in the first sort of, you know, you know, eight, ten years there of your career with all those different things happening as we speak and sort of what we now know it is. Yeah, so it, it, uh, you're very right. I think the the club side was very stable at the time with the stronger relationship that we had with uh, with team marketing, uh, and uh, it was a very well working relationship mm. that evolved uh, a lot during the years, and also the, with the creation of new competitions such as the Europa League. Uh, that take or centralizing first the UEFA, the former UEFA Cup. Correct. into the creation of the Europa League and more recently the creation of the Europa Conference League to, to increase the portfolio and give more chance to more clubs to experience what is European football. Uh, but so that, that part was quite stable. But on the um, on the national team football, yes, there, there's been a, a few evolution by step. First, the, the collapse of ISL has triggered the need to internalize part of the sponsorship because the, the structure of a euro at the time was that media rights were managed was a deal with the EBU very straightforward simple the EBU was uh, having all the rights for their members right. and was offering the production for the competition mm-hmm. uh, and the rest of the rights being sponsorship licensing and uh, international media rights were with ISA. Yeah, that's right. I, I, uh, people always yes. forget uh, ISL had the World Cup and the Euro. <laughs> indeed, Amazing. indeed, and uh, of course. So again, probably the the collapse of ISL has triggered UEFA to move as much as it triggered FIFA right. sure. move at the time by um, by internalizing uh, the the sponsorship and licensing with creating 
uh, a structure in-house mm -hmm. to, to manage that because uh, of the collapse of ISL and by looking at the management of the media rights too from a European standpoint, but also from an international standpoint. Right. And uh, 2004 was the trigger to identify that, well, the, the EBU, uh, as good as they were, was not was probably not anymore the answer for far uh, fast growing tournament mm -hmm. uh, on both sides uh, the the production of the tournament because the tournament was growing in importance and size right. and deserved more investment probably uh, for ensuring high quality production uh, the, the system of uh, DBU at the time was that the local broadcaster in the host country was doing the production and you imagine in Portugal in 2004 Right. was a bit difficult for the Portuguese broadcaster to handle this on his own and therefore needed more support from uh, the, the global network, which was not a simple one to put in place. Um, yes. So it, it triggered a further move to uh, in UEFA, whereby rather than dealing with DBU as we used to do in the past for Euro 2008, we decided to internalize all the management of this as part of the creation, the creation of the marketing department. And, um, and I ended up dealing with the management of all these media rights uh, myself and, um, and was a new era actually in the, in the world of UFR again, where we were uh, dealing with uh, a new agency. We've made a deal with Sport5 for part of the rights. Okay. Okay. Uh, which oh, uh, right. was, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 back in 2008, we were dealing with them and we managed uh, part of the international rights in-house too. Mm -hmm. And finally, we took care, we internalized all production within UEFA. And uh, we, we could do that because uh, they, they, there was the production of Euro, obviously, but the, the Champions League and the club competition requires also a very strong level of coordination for the, the production of the matches, even if it's done by the host broadcaster in the country in which the match happens. We To ensure that it's consistent across all matches, it requires a very strong coordination within uh, within UEFA. So we, we internalize all production for the final tournament and, uh, and all of the matches, basically. That that euro was uh, in Austria, was it in Switzerland? Right, they jointly. Was Austria and Switzerland in the Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. Mm, okay. Um, now, again, let's talk a bit about the the evolution there in the media space. Right, um, you know, anyone who's long been long enough around will definitely remember EBU, which was obviously mostly the terrestrial broadcasters in the uh, in these countries, rather than you know what was coming then at the time already was the sort of you know pay TV operators and others. Right, a lot of times they weren't really part of it in some cases. Right, and I think that was probably the challenge. I guess that uh, you weren't really getting the most money out of it because uh, certain people couldn't really even bid for it. Right, or what was it? What was really happening? I mean, you were right in the middle of that. Yeah, I mean, you, you perfectly uh, know it. I think there are two elements into that. First, uh, an EBU deal was uh, was limiting, in a way, the access to all the state broadcasters, which most of the time, at, at the time and still now, are doing a great coverage of those big tournaments, right. being World Cup, Euro, or uh, the Olympics. However, it was blocking other interested parties, such as commercial broadcasters, 
or uh, pay TV that were growing a lot at the time mm. to join the world of football and uh, offer uh, an enhanced coverage of the competition because obviously uh, free-to-air channels have a limited window to offer because they have a lot of other things to, to, to cover where pay TV and sports pay TV broadcasters could dedicate basically a full channel to the tournament and I, I believe that uh, 2008 was a, a move for, for us in order to make a balance between the coverage on free-to-air and the coverage on pay TV uh, to rebalance it and enhance and optimize the value of the rise going forward. Yeah. Now, again, at that time, you said uh, you, uh, Sport 5 played a major role, right? Um, so yeah. your, the role you were playing at the time, are you then negotiating these things with Sport 5? Is that sort of part of your remit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I did the, the deal with Sport 5, obviously, plus with the broadcasters uh, outside of Europe for the main territories. And um, and the, the relationship with Sport5 was very close. I mean, I must say, we've created a, a very strong connection. They, they built an office in Switzerland, in Geneva, dedicated okay. to our activities. So we were working together very, very closely on this project. Interesting. Now, again, I mean, some of those numbers are public, uh, at least there's, you know, there's always certain things being announced and later on uh, in terms of numbers, etc. Again, you know, you may not be able to share or not, but I'll ask anyway. I mean, if you compare, <laughs> if you compare a little bit um, the growth of these rights fees now, uh, where they were in, let's say, 2008 now, which we just talked about, to where we can talk about now, you know, you know, what is, what is besides the, 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 just the total number, if you can throw something out here. Um, what do you see? Um, is the, It's driving it. Is it the constant competition for the best product in the market? Is it, you know, technology or, you know, this whole debate, which is always going on at the moment, right? Where does the future revenue come from? You know, um, how do you see it having been there out there for 20 years? And, you know, if you can, you know, if you're looking back, uh, over those years in this space, well, what do you see um, is from your point of view happening? Yeah, okay, that's, that's a, a far bigger story. Um, I mean, there is obviously an, a huge evolution of the media landscape in between the, the, the year 2000 and today. Yeah. Uh, I would say that the biggest transformation in the in the recent years is more... Uh, is the digitalization, of course, of the landscape that have created uh, the ability to have non-linear uh, distribution of content, being uh, entertainment or sports, because somehow, I mean, all those non-linear channels, uh, I mean, let's talk about Dazone, for example, it's nothing else than a pay TV, but the, the main difference is uh, or subscription-based TV, obviously. The, the difference is the fact that they distribute on a non-linear basis Correct. versus linear for the others. Correct. I believe that that has been the, the biggest uh, biggest change in the recent years, uh, whereby uh, until maybe, let's say, 2010, uh, to, to put a timeline, I mean, sports was mostly limited uh, or national team sports was mostly limited to free to air channels and most probably to uh, state broadcasters. Uh, 
there's been an evolution where commercial broadcasters plus pay TV got into the space and enhanced the value of all those rights. Uh, for club competition, it's even more true because there's been the, the domestic leagues uh, that have increased the, the, the development or enhanced the development of those pay platforms. I mean, in all of Europe, club football is on pay TV and for many, many years. We made that move back towards the the, the start, I think, was probably in 2010 or something, where we moved for the first time to a full pay TV delivery mm -hmm. uh, for the Champions League, where before we were only, uh, we were having a mix between free to air and pay TV. But uh, it came out that uh, free to air channel could not afford it anymore at one point because pay TV were too rich mm. and also that it was more difficult for free to air to optimize the value because when the games uh, are, when you go into the knockout phase you have no certainty to have a domestic team playing right. and obviously audiences are very dependent on on free to air channels are very dependent on host uh, host yeah. country teams right. so it has triggered a move towards the full pay tv which is in any case where the domestic leagues were. So it hasn't been a big change in my view. It was just the, the direction of the market. Mm. And so the digitization of this landscape has, has moved to create more competitors. Uh, far more companies cannot create a platform today. And, uh, and this competition is, uh, is very healthy, I guess, for rights holders, obviously. <laughs> But uh, it's, uh, it's interesting also for subscribers. The question would be, what's the next step into the uh, into into the digitization of the market? And I, I strongly believe in a reconsolidation, probably at one point, and also mm -hmm. in a personalization of the content towards uh, towards the viewers, which would be able to build their screen with what they want to see right. in terms of content, in terms of data, in terms of ability to chat. So. Have a have a have a ability really to uh, to enjoy the, the the matches or the competition in other sports with all the elements they would want to see and they are interested in. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I think you you, you summarize it well um, at where where it's heading now. Question more specifically now. Um, The big boys of the Amazons and, and others who are now coming mm -hmm. in, right? And you st obviously see, start seeing it, especially in the America uh, market with the, with the big products there. Um, they're coming in, Apple, you know, doing a huge deal there with Major League yeah. Soccer, etc. How much is that already showing up on your radar too for whether it's the clubs or the, the national team side of the business here? Um, you start, you guys having these discussions as well? Do you start seeing them coming in or... Uh, you know, what's of course, we, we have a relationship with uh, with Amazon uh, for uh, already uh, five or six years, okay. uh, where there are partners in Germany and Italy for the time being, and they're looking to increase this uh, this footprint in the future. And in uh, which, which area is that specifically? Yeah. Which you know, is it the clubs? Uh, with, with, the, with the Champions League. With the Champions League. So okay. On Amazon. Uh, okay. the, the, uh, on Amazon one game of the Champions League per week okay. uh, in those three countries. 
uh, and uh, in the future they will increase this uh, this footprint too. Uh, we don't have deal with Apple at this stage, uh, and I guess I mean if you look at the evolution there as well. I believe that all those platforms are making tests before to go to the big properties. Amazon have tested the weather historically, if you remember, with the tennis. Uh, They've done it in uh, with uh, the French Open a few years ago and with other properties. And now they're getting the Premier League and around the Christmas, they have a dedicated package around Christmas uh, uh, because it's obviously a key timing for them. Uh, now they, they are dealing with us for a few years. They have the French League rights. Uh, they have eight out of 10 matches a week with the French League. So they, they, they are now a, a very dominant and present actor in the world of, uh, of sports and football, I believe. Uh, then Apple, probably I, I see it as a test with the MLS to have a global rights to manage a global property. There are not many available like this. That that would be a question mark. Or now they can uh, become more localized, I believe. Hmm. Uh, because obviously, uh, I'm not sure we are ready to move to a global deal. Uh, but why not? Huh? You never know. It depends, obviously, on what it means in terms of distribution, visibility, and revenues. But uh, so we have had a lot of discussion with them too. But we. We were not able to move in that direction yet. Uh, we have the partners like Dazone. I mean, so we moved a, a long time ago in that world of new platforms. And uh, and they are not new platforms anymore. It's like, you remember back in uh, early 2010 years, it was called uh, New Media. Yeah. And there's nothing like a new media anymore. It's it's yeah, part of media new, with yeah, a yeah, different way to and, and it's all part of the same uh, landscape, where with different means of distribution, yeah. which is uh, which is creating a very interesting jigsaw for us to navigate in. Yeah. Now here, here's a, another. Just to stick this for one more question here. Um, the American yeah. market itself. Um, you know, we, everyone know sees you know how certain leagues, you know, maybe particularly Premier League and others, are again g- getting huge monies out of it. Um, how important, um, and I'm, I'm assuming there's probably a bit of a difference maybe between the Champions League, which I'm sure is a, is a great product for the American market, was the biggest teams in the world, you know, club teams playing there. Um, how big is the Euro there? Um, obviously having no direct relation in a sense uh, to the market. Um, what's uh, the, What do you see there happening? So Euro, Euro has always been a, a big property in, in the U.S. For, uh, for years, so we enjoyed a very good relationship with ESPN uh, for many years mm-hmm. and with extremely good ratings. I mean, you you see the best of football during a Euro tournament. And I believe that uh, the U.S. wants to see the best. I mean, that's their mentality. Yeah. They want to see the best and they want to see the winners. And, uh, and Euro is delivering this. And also, don't forget about the very large number of European communities that you have in the US. Uh, and uh, there is a very, very strong watching by those communities too. So we move for next year, we move to Fox. Okay. Uh, that is uh, very keen. They, they have the World Cup, obviously. They have now the Euro. Mm-hmm. And they obviously want to cover national team football, where that's their probably their, their USP 
in the world of what they call soccer over there, mm-hmm. uh, uh, whereby club football is covered by other uh, platforms and it's moving more and more towards uh, streamers, where uh, Fox will keep the national team football. And as you know, Fox is probably one of the only media groups that didn't go into the streaming world so far. Yeah, so that's not uh, they, they, yet. That's right. They, they use it probably as a as a very important platform to create more uh, viewers and to differentiate themselves from the rest of the market landscape. Yeah. So yeah. they are very aggressive and very willing to 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 be the home of national team football. Now you you guys created UEFA TV, which actually yeah. is, as an app I have on my phone. Um, and you know, so again, what's Talk us through the the yeah. reason, the logic, and and what do you, how are you guys currently using it? Yeah, so I think um, the, when we created uh, UEFA TV back in 2019, there were probably three or four key objectives uh, behind it. First of all, was obviously to be on that market uh, of the uh, federation own. Uh, OTT platform to anticipate any move going forward. Um, the second one was to create an ability to generate value. And here I'm not talking only about money, but also in uh, in terms of content creation from uh, the archive that we have. I mean, we sit on the overall UEFA competition archive since inception. Right. And we therefore have the ability to create original content Uh, for our own digital platform that might not be relevant for other platforms. And so since we've created UEFA TV, we regularly cover and create content based on archive that is, uh, I mean, we sit on on gold on this and we try to create some some great content from it uh, that people might have forgotten because, uh, of course, archive, you know, with the fast uh, use and consumption of content, I mean, you probably move to the next one very quickly and having this ability to exploit this archive is very, very useful and interesting. But currently, uh, it's it's, yeah. a, it's free, right? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah it is free no for pay, the time. Paywall, right? Yeah. right. Yeah, that's why when I'm cre- talking about creating value, hmm. it's not necessarily only about money and sure. creating value for us on everything we do is not only about the, the, the revenue generation, it's going beyond it that in any case we believe we'll pay back in the longer run. Right. So we, we're creating short-term value and long-term value. The, the long-term value is in investing in the brand, investing into the competition and investing in content as we do for that. So it goes far beyond the, the pure the short-term revenues. Right. Um, coming back to UFI TV, I think a third element was to create a home for uh, for our youth right. uh, football, you, the youth, the futsal, the women's football that was not really shown on television. Mm. And so we, we have all of this football live on our platform uh, available, which is also uh, quite good for us as the rights holder to have the ability to give a platform for, uh, for those competitions. Mm. And fourth, probably it contributes also to the to the management of our uh, data. Um, of course, we moved uh, towards a data-driven business. Uh, it's obvious 
for us, we, we today we have a database that is about 46 million people on our database okay. that come from our overall uh, digital ecosystem, being uh, UFA.com for institutional information, being UFA TV for the uh, video entertainment, being uh, the gaming hub for, of course, gaming, mm-hmm. being the apps for the competition information, and all of these gathered in a central database that uh, we are starting to exploit from uh, from a commercial standpoint too, with uh, sponsors, broadcasters, and others. Yeah, that, that's a, yeah, absolutely. That's a powerful database, and, and of course, it's growing. Yeah, actually, I think I remember watching some. I think it must must have been the under nineteen euro. I think Germany yeah. was doing actually quite well. I can't remember whether we made it to the. It seems that you only watch uh, Germany, yeah? You know, when it comes to national team, uh, I have a little bias here, I have to admit. (laughs) 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 Well, you know, we'll come to that later because the next one, of course, is in in Germany here next year. We'll we'll save that for the later part here in our conversation. Now, um, I want to talk a little bit about the, again, when, when it comes to, you have two big groups, right? You have team on one side and you have uh, CA11 on the others who, you know, doing a lot of the commercial business there uh, on, on many levels. Um, what is sort of, you know, how does it work? They, you, as, as the governing body, you still approve everything or there are certain guidelines that follow uh, and it's more of a supervisory role. How do you see the sort of relationship bet- between yourself, your, your commercial side of the business with the, the partners you have that the agencies yes um so um globally i would see uh so team was in place obviously since the inception of the champions league back in uh, 92 where as you mentioned earlier ex-isl executive has uh, come with these ideas to johansson and uh mr eigner and uh, ends the creation of the Champions League back at the time. And since that team has always been involved. Uh, The relationship has probably evolved quite significantly, where uh, probably we we have reduced the the scope of team, but not in a negative way. We we took more control of the competition that uh, bears our name. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, just to, to make it simple, I would say that obviously, we uh, we are in charge of all the strategic elements, which are brand uh, and distribution strategy uh, that we build together with team. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, compared to what happened at the at the beginning of the relationship in the nineties, we are doing all the uh, commercial uh, operations delivery at the at the venues. Mm-hmm. So in the coordination with the clubs, because obviously clubs have a connection with UEFA and not with team so it was very important for us to be the one delivering that mm-hmm. and uh, all the contracts with our commercial partners are uh, signed by UEFA mm-hmm. so we obviously uh, defined the the scope to start with and uh, agree and make all decisions when it comes to the selection of the partners following a process so the process is very strong uh, in order to make sure that there is no uh, risk of governance into the management of those commercial rights. Right. But we work extremely closely with team and actually with CA11 too, but I'll come to it separately, sure. uh, in order to make sure that 
all the processes are very tight and that we are aligned on all the commercial decisions that ultimately are taken by UEFA. Mm. So it's, uh, it, it works very well, but the, the main function of team is obviously the, the commercial activities and going on the market to identify uh, via the, 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 the relevant process mm. uh, the best parts for uh, the, the competition in each market or when it comes to sponsorship in each category. Uh, when it comes to CA, so it's it's more recent, obviously. Uh, yeah, 2.12, I believe, been, right? Uh, 2.12, exactly. And mm. it was created on the back of one of the most creative and important projects, I believe, in my years in UEFA, which was the centralization of the national team football rights. Uh, right. Meaning, as you hinted at the beginning of our discussion, that the federation historically were selling the rights of the games being played on their own turf, being qualifying games or friendly games, yeah. and uh, which created uh, 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 an interesting uh, network of agents representing the federation for their home or away games. Yes, lots uh, of stories on that. <laughs> lots of stories on that. Um, and back in 2010, it was, the decision was taken to centralize those rights, uh, to uh, to optimize the value that we could trigger from those rights yeah. when going to the market. Uh, centralizing means that we uh, negotiated with each of the 55 associations in UEFA's network mm -hmm. in order to acquire and centralize uh, the rights that they had and having the ability to sell not only uh, as they were doing before the first party rights or so the domestic rights, yes. but we could offer on a single market the home and away matches right. of the domestic team, which has been a, a revolution in the world of national team football. And that has created a significant increase in the revenues, not necessarily, I would say, in the first party rights because the national association in their own market yeah. were probably doing a good job. Right. but. It helps, I mean, the broadcaster had then the ability to buy not only the domestic rights from the domestic NA, but all the story uh, of the qualification phase right. of their national team by acquiring in one place right. the first and second party rights. So the home and away matches. Correct. So the ability to tell the overall story, which in the past was more difficult because obviously the role of the agent was to make sure to create uh, to create a, a big competition uh, between the, the the broadcasters on the market, and also there was no certainty to be able to acquire all the rights because usually you were in a group of five or six, so you had to deal with four or five different opponents okay. and acquire a very fragmented uh, set of rights. Correct. So yeah, we created three different agencies by, you're dealing with the yes. right, So, so the, the value was created by the ability of telling the full story. And by the ability also to sell third-party rights, meaning that neutral rights in Europe and outside of Europe were uh, were centralized yes. and give the ability to broadcasters, and in this case, mostly pay broadcasters, to tell a full story of qualification to a, a Euro uh, or the World Cup tournament. Yeah. And that has been extremely successful I must say, at the time. Don't forget as well that pay broadcasters, when there is the Champions League window, there is no football, uh, sorry, the, nations, the national team window, there is no football. 
There is right. no domestic football. Right. And a lot of those pay broadcasters have attracted subscribers uh, for their rights in domestic leagues or Champions League. So being able in those two weeks when there's no other football to show the best of national team football was very important for them. Not necessarily as a subscription driver, but as a, a service to the to the to the subscribers to give them football uh, all year long, which is very useful in terms of the management of portfolio of rights and in management of the calendar. And that has proven to be very successful. So in order to manage that, um, we it was decided to not do it internally because the need in resources was very large. And we somehow uh, tried to duplicate the team model by appointing a fully dedicated agency for national team football. Yeah. And Just... hence, the Saucier won the tender and created a, a company here in Lyon, very close to us, called CA11, yeah. where uh, a, a lot of our, uh, in the starting team, there were lots of former UEFA people that moved from UEFA to CA11 to manage that program. Right. Uh, and the success of it has triggered then the creation of a new competition to replace friendly matches yep. and the creation of the Nations League. Right that probably most of you are very uh, familiar with uh, and that also has added to the success of national team football i believe yeah absolutely and and honestly i i'm i from I still remember this quite vividly uh, first of all stefan schindler is a good friend and has been on the yeah. podcast of course as well um so we've, we had a good you know deep dive into already you know from his point of view of course coming in there through the agency who now wanted uh, and that sort of you know and we did, you know, talk about it. And I remember uh, the Sportel days when, uh, you know, Nation League was presented for the first time and the new mm -hmm. concept behind it and all this sort of things. Now, again, this is now, you know, we have almost a decade into it um, since it first started. What, what were you, you know, seeing it from the Federation side of it? Um, how successful do you think it has been, not just from a monetization point of view, but from... Do people really start to understand the difference, um, how the nation leagues work, uh, the format, you know, or is it still a bit too early uh, days for it? So uh, I um, I think, I mean, it's a, for me, it's a very strong success. So commercially, it's obviously a very strong success. And the broadcasters could uh, confirm that because those uh, competitive matches have replaced friendlies, uh, friendly matches that were probably too many at the time right. and it has created value from an audience perspective that are keen to follow those matches that are extremely competitive because the Nations League is uh, split in four divisions mm. and of course in those divisions all the teams have equivalent level with promotion and relegation that, that creates a, a lot of uh, exciting matches uh, when it comes to uh, the the value for the, the fans, I believe that it is obviously there because the, the audience numbers prove it. We haven't been lucky with with the Nations League, I would say. The first edition has been extremely successful uh, with a final it, right? back in Portugal, yes, and uh, it, was, it was extremely good. And then we ended up with uh, COVID yep. or the second edition of it. Uh, with a final four being played in October 
which is not ideal. Obviously, you always want those final tournaments, even if it's mini tournaments, to be played in June. Mm. So the October window was not ideal. What was very good, and actually France won it, so it was obviously very, very good. And uh, so that that has not helped the the development after a very strong start. And the second, uh, the third edition, ended up because of the World Cup in winter, with uh, four matches of the of the group phase being played in June, 2022, mm-hmm. but four matches in a row, which again was not ideal for the consistency of the product. Right, right. So we we have this uh, this this June the the next final four, so the third final four of the uh, Nations League in Holland mm-hmm. uh, with Italy, Holland, uh, Spain and Croatia being participating. So obviously four big teams, but that tournament is only about uh, the finals will obviously always trigger big teams playing it. And as from this, is, uh, this, this, this June, yeah. we about this yes, year. it's this between year. the Before... 14 and 18 of right. June. OK, got it after the, the Champions League final. Mm-hmm. And as from the following edition, we obviously will go uh, to a more traditional pattern of the competition with a, a small change in the uh, in the format that will make it even more exciting uh, with uh, some playoffs being played. I will not go into the details here because right. it's, it is very visual. It's very simple but needs a bit of an explanation, but will make it even more exciting, I must say. Yeah. And, and so, I think uh, you're right. I think the, the part which now where you just described that, I think because it has been moved around, um, you know, COVID obviously uh, you know, didn't help either and all the other things which we all know happened the last several years here uh, with events being shifted. So I think that's probably been the part that, you know, someone who like myself who actually follows football obviously very closely um, it would struggle to see when it was and where it is, um, but it probably has something to do with just that the, you know it hadn't been really been consistent, and, and maybe that's uh, part of the challenge, uh, you know, and fixing that in the future, I guess. Um, yeah, no, I'm convinced that effectively that uh, that it will grow. We haven't been unlucky. Was being unlucky, it still has worked quite well. So I'm extremely confident with this and what uh, the, the feedback we have from the broadcasters, and obviously. The broadcasters are, are for us a very good reflection of what the fans mm. think because they, they receive, they, they of course are daily in contact with their audience. Uh, the, the feedback we receive is extremely positive. So I have no doubt that it will grow and that it, it's taking a very important place in the national team football landscape. Uh, there is no doubt about that. I'll take your word for this. <laughs> um, Please now, do. I, I, I will. Now, I got a couple more things here I want to cover. Um, um, also, conscious of time. Uh, first of all, let's just for a minute go back to Champions League, and then we're going to wrap it up here with Euro stuff. Um, one is there is a new format, I believe, coming next year. Uh, and even I try to read it, and, and I have to admit, I'm not sure I fully understood it. Um, can you simplify what is exactly the difference um, in this new format next season in the Champions League? Yeah. I mean, uh, so first, it's, there will not be a group stage anymore. Mm-hmm. It will be a league phase right. where all the teams will be ranked against each other. Uh, we will draw from 32 to 36 teams. So that's probably 
the first uh, the first change. Mm-hmm. But obviously, uh, it's a, it's a league, but you don't play against all the opponents because it will be far too long. Right. So uh, what will happen is that there will be eight uh, match days during the league phase. Um, the eight matches will be played against eight different opponents mm-hmm. rather than today only three opponents in the group stage with right. home and away matches. Mm-hmm. So you won't play twice against the same team anymore. Okay. And um, you will play, so the teams will be splitting four different groups as it is today, mm-hmm. or four different pots. And you will play, a team will play two opponents of each pot. So, uh, for example, uh, I don't know, but let's take Paris because it's my team. Paris will be in pot uh, one. Uh, They will play two opponents from pot one, two opponents from pot two, two opponents from pot three, and two opponents from pot four. And the pots are created by, of course, coefficient and ranking. Uh, So it creates another change compared to today, is that today in uh, the, the group... Uh, structure in the group phase no team from pot one plays other teams for pot one Mm. and today from the beginning you will have those matches so it will create those matches straight from day one against each other exactly from day one Mm. Uh, there would be as we move to eight matches in this league phase there would be a couple of dates in January that is important because today we have a we have probably a whole of two months in yeah, between yeah. the end of the group stage and uh, right? February, exactly. So we, we feel a bit of this gap, which is very also useful and interesting to follow up the competition. And when it comes to the knockout phase, there would be two uh, phases. First, the eight, the first eight in the uh, league phase will qualify directly to the round of 16. Mm-hmm. And then the number nine to 24, would play a playoff uh, in order to uh, to identify eight teams that will join the the first eight. So and then it's a normal knockout phase, starting with the round of sixteen. Right, right. Interesting. So now, again, the, so it's know. very enhanced. Uh, it's it's very enhancing the the quality of the format with a longer uh, calendar with two additional match days. Uh, and also having this ability to to play not only against three opponents during the group stage, but eight different teams, four home and four away, and playing uh, teams of your group level from day one. Right. Interesting. Now, again, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll have to use the word, and, and I'll let you see what you'd like to answer on it. I mean, there's, you know, the, the Super League obviously has pop this head up, you know, every once in a while, right? every sort of whatever, several years it sort of shows up and uh, throws a thread out there with certain groups, of course, um, promoting it. Uh, and UEFA so far has done always a really good job adjusting things and uh, ensuring that the money is, uh, you know, is getting larger and bigger for everyone. Now, how do you guys see it internally? I mean, uh, you know, how, how do you react to it? You know, what, what's the sort of uh, uh, here they come again, or <laughs> how do you guys deal with it? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, look, I think this has been covered quite extensively. Uh, that, in our view, the Super League is dead and uh, will not happen anymore. But uh, I guess we also have, and we triggered. It started far before the, the Super League. 
we first the, the competition format has evolved in a very positive direction i believe second we are uh, changing the governance of the the club competition by uh, creating a joint venture between uefa and dca to jointly manage the commercial uh, process okay. of the club competitions which means that by creating that joint venture and by co-managing the commercial rights we are uh, creating stability trust and unity uh, in the management of the club competition in the long run so that's a, that's a very significant move yeah that's that huge. Uh, the other for, side is what i call vca you said or The DCA is the European DC. Club Association. Oh, European DCA. Club Association. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Okay. European Club Association, and we we've created that joint venture uh, already a few years ago, back in in 2017. But now it will become fully operational uh, okay. with uh, with a dedicated team that will manage those rights on behalf of UEFA uh, and the clubs. Got it. Okay. It that's really interesting. So, and the ECA uh, again. They how that represents all clubs, or there you have to be a member again, or how does that work? So the DCA, uh, I will not go into the details because obviously it's not my my role. But the sure. DCA represents, I believe, today 250 clubs or to okay. 300 clubs that have all been participating into the club competition Got in it. the past. However, they just changed their statutes, so I don't know the exact details, but it will now include also. Other clubs in a different uh, form of membership, but it will grow the number of members to 500 clubs, if I remember correctly, the number. Oh wow! Okay, so it, uh, yeah, it has a huge uh, reach then. Uh, okay. Yeah, so it's uh, it's really our uh, our counterpart when we talk about uh, yeah uh, about our club competitions. And but it, but the team will still be there managing this on behalf of those two entities, or there's a change. I mean, look, well. we, yeah, yeah, we 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 have uh, an agreement with team until 2027 for the time being. Right, got it. Okay, excellent, exciting, yeah, interesting. Now let's. Uh, I, I want to go a bit into the competitions itself, um, and and the more yeah. recent ones. Of course, we could talk about uh, 12 and 16 and all that stuff. But uh, let, let's talk about more the more recent ones, both men and women. Um, number one, you obviously had two, the Euro 220, which was supposed to be this you know big celebration across 11 countries, which in itself already was you know it was a huge undertaking, and then you throw. COVID in the middle of it um, and, and the mess that created and obviously then a year later happened. So I'd love to just hear your thoughts a bit, you know, what you guys did, how did you guys manage to pull it off? Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear a bit of the insight on that. Well, of course, it was extremely challenging, but not only for the world of football, it was extremely challenging for everybody. Of course. Uh, uh, it was absolutely terrible with a lot of people dying and a uh, And a lot of concerns for companies and for families and for everybody. So it's it's a far broader issue than sure. football itself. When it comes to football, obviously, um, uh, back in March 2020, uh, I guess the first decision that we took is to announce the postponement of Euro hmm. uh, to the following year uh, to ensure that the domestic leagues and federation could have a space in the calendar because we didn't know obviously how long it would last and what would be the right. the, the, the the evolution of this pandemic so leaving space to the to the various uh, domestic uh, rights holders 
or competition organizer to consider how to run their own seasons because obviously domestic football is extremely important in the overall uh, scope of the of, of football in the pyramid of football. Right. So that that was the first decision that was taken very very quickly, and this was probably in hindsight very right yeah. because it allowed most of the European uh, when we talk about Europe obviously uh, European leagues to finish their uh, their championship. And we also have been able to finish uh, the, the European club competition with final eight tournaments mm-hmm. uh, in August, uh, one in Germany in Köln for Europa League and one in, uh, in Portugal. And that has the ability for this part of football to be able to continue and survive because, mm-hmm. I mean, when you, when you are clubs and you don't have any spectators for six nine months i mean it's 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 a very difficult time obviously to, to manage your business um so then if we come back to euro uh well again we didn't know how long it would last uh, bottom line we manage it in those uh 11 countries actually it ended up being 10 because i think dublin pulled out in the end okay uh, and uh, with very difficult governance in the sense that each country had a different law. Yeah. Uh, each country made it very different in the way you could enter the country, in the way in the number of people that in could be stadium. in the stadium, yes, uh, in, uh, in, in the number of people that could work also on the event. So it, it was a very complex jigsaw to put together but at the end of the day, we've been able to successfully deliver it, which, uh, looking back, sounds like a miracle. Mm. But uh, when we were in the middle of it, it worked, I must say, uh, quite well. Everybody was really uh, uh, very focused on the on the delivery of the rights, and it has worked extremely well with a very large number of testing and, uh, I must say, it's a, the, the budget for testing was multi-million uh, was enormous, and it's ultimately uh, has worked with uh, with a final in Wembley yeah. that has been played with full house, and that was very dramatic in terms of the outcome with England uh, winning at the beginning, Italy coming back, etc. Yeah. But was uh, was thrilling, I must say, and being able to pull that is a big tribute, I guess, to our organization, which I must say I didn't mention it before, but I really rate. And I believe it's a very, very good place to work in. Yeah. How many people work on this? I mean, you know, in-house. Uh, I mean, usually I'm sure you bring in agencies to run certain parts of it. But uh, you know, how big is the team uh, within UEFA who's going to manage this? To be honest, I mean, I don't uh, remember exactly, but it, uh, it grew by 300 to 400 people during a Euro period with uh, central and because this was also very peculiar because we didn't have a, a local organizing committee because it was spread in, across uh, yeah, ten, 10 markets. So we, we have this plus we have about traditionally 3000 people working only on the, uh, on the host broadcasting. Mm. Um, and uh, the hospitality program was a bit smaller, obviously in that period so less people working on that but uh, it's a it's a very large number of people working on the on euro obviously so currently that your host broadcasting setup um 
HBS does uh, the, the World Cup. Who, you guys, who do you guys use, actually? So we, we are doing it internally. Uh, we, we are basically the HBS of, uh, of Euro. Ah, right. And we, we have centralized all of this, again, because we have so many competitions across the, the year that we can justify having a, a production team that FIFA yes. probably can't really right. because they have mostly World Cup and now the Women's World Cup have grown significantly. Right. But in the past, so we, we, we have a fully dedicated team to look after all the podcasts and we obviously uh, use uh, production companies to bring the Obivan trucks, sure. uh, bring all the, the necessary equipment on track, but when it comes to engineering and all project management, it is done internally. Right, got it, got it, makes sense. All right, let's talk women's Euro, because, uh, yes. you know, again, this was just last year, of course, you know, again, from all intents and purposes of what I saw and, and read, uh, it was very successful. In this case, England are won the final in, Wim, uh, in Wembley this mm -hmm. time. Again, yes. And, uh, yeah, uh, this time against Germany, uh, fine. We'll take that. Uh, you know, we wanted eight times already to throw that in your mix. Um, <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> now, you know, talk women's football. You know, every, it's it's it is sort of on everyone's radar now. Um, not just because of the huge success of the Euro, but you have leaks now around the world, and you know, women's sports in general is, of course, you know, being being put on the front pages here. So, uh, love to hear your thoughts uh, on from a UEFA, you know, point of view. Yeah, you, women's football is growing quite significantly uh, and it's been growing step by step. But I believe there's been an acceleration in the last years. Uh, it's been great. I mean, I can see it from a French perspective whereby I fully remember, uh, and you will remember when uh, the World Cup 2010 happened and uh, the, food, the, the men's team went on strike. Okay. There's been a move of the fans towards women's football because of the very genuine values that it conveys, okay. that ladies on the pitch were not faking, were playing, uh, were going for it, were very, were very playing a genuine and, and good football. Right. And a lot of attention to women's football in France moved there at the time. Okay. But I think the, the interest grew uh, very steadily. I mean, one of the key milestones, we have to admit, was the World Cup in France in 2019. That has been extremely successful too, mm -hmm. and that has been uh, the, the most recent milestone before, of course, the the Euro 2022 in France. From a UEFA perspective, we we are very much supporting the development of women's football, and two elements uh, have been supporting it. First, uh, we have a dedicated team for women's football led by Nadine Kessler, a former best women's football player uh, in, in, the, in the world mm -hmm. uh, that is uh, leading that team and is pushing the boundaries very uh, significantly to make sure that it grows every single day. We invest a lot of time, uh, resources and effort into growing the game and I'll come to it uh, later. But also from a commercial standpoint, whereby back in 2018, we probably were the first or if not one of the first to split the commercial management of women's football from the men's football okay. by creating dedicated women's football package where in the past 
women's football was sold on the back of the men's football. Right. National team together with Euro club together with uh, the women's Champions League together with men's Champions League, and that's the way it was managed before that, uh, as it's still in, in in some of federation, I must say, mm-hmm. and uh, and. The, the, we did it at the time because we realized that uh, partners that were coming on board were mostly coming coming for the men's football, and were not investing the right level of efforts or investment into the women's game. Right. And secondly, that if they didn't want it, there was no point to oblige them to take it. Right. They saw it as a tax to get the men's rights. They mm. they, they were saying, telling us it's a tax, uh, and we didn't want to see it like this. And so we created. Uh, this women's football package that were gathering all our women's properties together with a uh, platform right. uh, um, together with a platform called uh, We Play Strong that is a digital platform we've created where we have a lot of women's football content that is running all year long and okay. that was a place, a destination to make sure that it was not only from competition to competition but that there was a full year-long delivery of rights for the partners to this uh, to this movement. Okay, so and that's separate to the UEFA TV. That there is a specific separate to the UEFA TV. It's a okay. it's a digital platform. It's not a, only a, a, a video platform. It covers a lot of other things too. But right. it's really dedicated to the women's uh, game. Okay, and uh, what was the address? We play. What? Oh, sorry, I didn't catch it. We play strong. We play strong. Got it. Okay. Uh, and this, together with the, the, the rights to the to the virus competition, we, we went on the market, and I must say that this has been extremely successful because uh, partners, and I think the, the view and the evolution of women's in sports and especially of football has been very fast and very positive, where it is seen as the equivalent to men with probably a very genuine approach to it, to it and supporting obviously the g- gender equality I mean it's the best probably platform to support that for many brands mm. and uh, we had a lot of brands joining the, the movement for women's football now I think in parallel we have evolved the competition too uh, the competition formats have, have changed uh, with the women's Champions League coming with a group stage mm. and a knockout very similar to the men that allowed a very clarity, a bigger clarity into the format and into the calendar. And we have recently announced a restructuring too of the national team football uh, with the creation of a Nations League. And the reason for that is that we identified a lot of uh, very large score uh, being the 10-0, 6-0, 15-0 that has happened in the past, hmm. which is not productive for anyone, yeah. uh, for the winners or for the losers. Yeah. And the creation of a Nations League, of course, makes sure that teams of the same level play against each other right. and that you create a winning mentality by having the ability to win games. Hmm. Like so. Uh, and so we, we've started that, uh, it's just starting now, Mm-hmm. And uh, we we also support it very strongly because it's obviously uh, the next step in the evolution of the women's game. Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. And, and and you already touched on it. Obviously, there is a UEFA Women's Champions League as well, um, yeah. which again, maybe not everyone knows or even follows. So, and uh, the final is in June on June third uh, against Barcelona versus Wolfsburg from Germany. Yes, uh, and Wolfsburg is one of those 
teams, which has been you know traditionally really strong in women's football. Um, you know, but you saw Chelsea in the semi-final, Arsenal. So you know, again, you know, traditional clubs which people recognize from the men's world uh, you start seeing here uh, playing in this this level now as well which is great um, commercially is that separated the same way the men's is? so one sits with CAA and one sits with with, uh, with team or how, how is the women game structured from no the we side? so we, we took it we took it away from uh, from the, the men's management and so it's managing managed directly by us okay so uh, the, the restructuring of the the women's Champions League with a very clear uh, competition format, so eight groups of four, uh, the first two qualify to the round of 16. Uh, uh, very simple and clear, with a dedicated calendar outside of the shadow of the men's competition, uh, has helped to bring clarity. And also it has been accompanied by a centralization of the media rights from uh, the group stage level. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have made a deal we wanted to be, I mean, we wanted the there was the opportunity and the market was ready to make a different approach to it. And we've developed, we have a global deal with Dazon and YouTube okay. mm-hmm. to broadcast the Women's Champions League. So uh, the first two seasons was 100% free on, on YouTube. That has triggered very, very significant audiences. And from next season, there would be a mix between the Dazon platform and the YouTube platform in order to, uh, to make it available in various places so it's been extremely successful so far and as you touch upon uh, i think one of the biggest uh, second uh, change is that the big clubs have played a role into it as well by creating their own uh, women's section their own women's team which was not necessarily the case five or six years ago right. so now all the major clubs in europe have a women's team and obviously uh, it triggers more investment I would say because those clubs have more means to invest into the game but also more uh, fans following it because in club football I guess the attachment of fans to their brand to their club is extremely important and they will follow their brand and their club in any type of sport it is uh, being men's or women's football, being basketball for those that have a basketball franchise, etc., yeah. etc. Et so the, the, the contribution of those big clubs help a lot as well for the development of the game. No doubt. So just to make sure I wasn't clear that I understood this correctly. So if I'm a broadcaster and I want to have the, the Women's Euro and the Champions League for women, I come to you, right? Um, you might you you would be able to bundle that up and sell me sell to me correct so uh, as a broadcaster not exactly so the women's champions league you would come to us when it comes to the uh, women's euro it is sold by c11 as part oh, of okay. the national so football but them. separately okay. separately from the men's football not as Got a package it. right okay and as a when it comes as a to sponsor that's one it, you you come to us we are we working with a company you would know about is two circles okay sure. two circle is a digital uh, consultancy and um, uh, a media uh, consultancy and they're helping us because they, they've invested a lot on uh, on women's game and in sponsorship in order to create new audiences and so they're helping us to uh, to build the, the relevant packages in a new uh, innovative way of distributing the content uh, and to distribute the, the sponsorship, uh, the, the sponsorship rights too. 
Yeah, awesome. Uh, that makes sense, and uh, that's really helpful. I think it's also good for people to understand really what you, how you guys are doing it, and uh, as you said, you unbundling it to some degree to really give give the women uh, football or this their their own space, right? And for people to be specifically, because you know, we all, I'm sure everyone has been reading about FIFA um, and what's happening with the women's World Cup in Europe. Um, you know, clearly. FIFA is not happy yet uh, with the numbers being offered by broadcasters, and so you know it's this whole debate about blackout and all those things. So, yeah, I don't want you to comment on that necessarily so much, but uh, it just shows uh, it isn't as simple as it sounds like, um, right? Um, just by separating it out, uh, that doesn't always mean the broadcasters automatically jump on it and, and or you know offering them the money people are looking for. So it's it's still a work in progress. I mean, look, I believe that in any case. Uh... I mean, none of the commercial partners are uh, a charity, uh, being the broadcaster or the sponsors, and they will uh, they will offer the value they estimate is in the in the rights for them, yeah. and does it fit with the 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 wish of the rights holder? Not always. No. Uh, probably have the same issue. In we would want to generate more money. It's not always the case sure. uh, because the market is not there. Probably here the difficulty for the European broadcaster is that the competition is for good reasons in uh, Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, uh, but obviously for the time zone in Europe, it's more difficult. Yes. But uh, so then it's uh, it's it triggers complex discussions, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we all know exactly how that works. Um, now, you know, let's wrap it up here because we've been spending almost a good hour and a half here talking, and, and it's we could go forever because there's so many different facets of, especially what we just debated, discussed just now here about the you know the national side of it, and that's by itself is exciting. And then of course you're throwing the Champions League, which is the single biggest club competition in the world. Uh, in the mix, and now the women's side of it. So it's it's so many different elements. Uh, so I, I envy mm-hmm. you for your job there. Uh, you know, it's a, I'm sure, like you keep saying at the beginning, I'm sure you're having a lot of fun doing this, even though uh, there's also a lot of hard work. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I must say, I mean, I, it went so fast. I mean, I, I, I celebrated 20 years at UEFA yes. recently, and it's I found it amazing. But I still have fun, as you say. It's obviously challenging, but otherwise it would be boring. Yeah, uh, but it's a great place to work in with great people, great competition. So, yeah, I'm, uh, it's I have a great time. I must say. I can imagine. Now let's wrap it up with Euro 24 in my home country, and of course uh, Germany. Hopefully, will win it. <clears throat> now, uh, <laughs> you know, give me your thoughts from a UEFA perspective. Of course, Germany being a huge football market, being one of you know clearly one of the biggest TV markets in the in your region, uh, having it there is a, is a no brainer. Uh, also, normally uh, Germans are pretty well organized. Uh, but uh, what's your own expectations? Uh, you know, what, what's the sort of milestones uh, you? UEFA is looking for here. Well, I think uh, it, it it is. It was seen as a relief after the Euro 2020 that became 21 yeah. in uh, 11 different markets and uh, during a pandemic time. Going then to Germany was seen as a as a relief, obviously because uh, Germans are known for their organization and planning and uh, infrastructure mm. and it is true that we don't have to worry at all about uh, infrastructure stadiums out there i mean the the trains uh, the trains uh, systems is very good but all the infrastructure already exists which is a relief we don't have to focus too much on that part yeah. um, 
So uh, everybody has in mind the great memories of the World Cup 2006. Yes. We, I must say, uh, the Germans uh, recall us very often. And it's true that it has been extremely successful with probably the first, uh, if it was not in Korea, the first major project in fan zones. Correct. Uh, yeah. uh, and we hope we will have the same uh, great weather than the World Cup in 2006 enjoyed because it has created, it has helped the tournament a lot yes. with having everybody outside at the time, if you remember. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the fans uh, were, were crazy. Literally a yeah, million that, people on the street, right? Yes. In yeah, that other was, was but, uh, but yes, I mean, we are extremely positive. It's, uh, it's uh, of course, a big market economically. Uh, it is uh, a, a very strong football market and uh, population. So all the signals are green uh, from a sporting pro pro perspective and from a, an operational perspective. It's, uh, it's obviously, uh, I don't know if it's easy because nothing is easy, yeah. but the starting point, it makes it simpler to manage where you don't have to focus on certain uh, infrastructure issues that we could have faced in the past. Sure. Well, I hopefully be there too. Maybe I'll we'll catch up somewhere in one of the cities <laughs> for a beer. Uh, and we probably and will enjoy, as I said, the, the matches as well. Exactly, we, uh, we, uh, we do have some matches, some matches too. So, uh, um, you can now, play home. For exactly. sure. Exactly. I will host you there. Absolutely. <laughs> Elon, this was a lot of fun. Uh, and I do want to mention that, of course, the next Women World Cup is in Switzerland, I believe, right? Uh, in 225? Yes, in oh. 25. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So, uh, again, those are, you know, back to back here. Germany, Switzerland. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, we're just getting close to, you know, Champions League finals here, uh, both men and women, as we touched on earlier. So, Busy time for you guys. Um, enjoy the rest of the the the, uh, the I guess left of the competition here, and then I guess you have a bit of a break and uh, and uh, it starts all over again. So yeah, uh, it never stops somehow. It seems yes, exactly. So uh, you know, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for all the answers here and, and and the insights into the you know great world of UEFA and and all the roles you're obviously playing and uh, you know amazing the the knowledge you have across everything you guys are doing here. So. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thank you, Marcus. Was a uh, was good fun, I must say. Yeah, and I tried it too. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thanks a lot. Ciao, ciao. Cheers. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.